Philip won't be here to <laughs> hear this. <laughs> but as a follow-up to his story, um, he texted me on Thursday afternoon a picture of their site. And my response back to him was, is there another group coming next week? <laughs> and he's like, no, nope, we're going to finish by tomorrow. And I did not text back to him, I said, but my thought was, you will need an act of God <laughs> to accomplish this. So I think they, they got the act of God that they needed. Well, as most of you know, we're so a little hot here, uh, if there's a way to dial it down a little. As most of you know, we live in a time of massive upheaval in the American church. The cultural assumptions that we have really relied on, the expectations, the traditions that, that the church has built on for two centuries have, have essentially evaporated in a generation as our culture has turned unapologetically secular and humanistic and individualistic. The church now, and we need to realize this, Right? The church now is viewed with increasing suspicion and cynicism, both by insiders, but even more so by those outside the church. Because long-buried abuses have come to light. People have learned how churches have systematically mishandled horrific sin within them. We still see public pastors fall from grace, I would say, with increasing frequency. And at the same time, the political partisanship and hostility that is dividing American culture is further separating Christians from non-Christians and simultaneously splitting congregations that, that should be united by a higher devotion, but all too often are not. These forces are combining to send churchgoers fleeing with no intent to return. Right? While most Americans still believe in God, the percentage of Americans who reject any sort of religious affiliation rose from 6% to 22% from 1992 to 2014. That's 22 years, almost quadrupled. The rate is not decreasing. For millennials, the number stands at 35% who have no religious affiliation. It is increasing because, because this is an entire generation that simply fails to see the relevance of a church whose words and actions do not match its professed doctrine. This is the reality of our moment, and we need to be honest about it, and we need to understand it to understand where we really are. And everyone who loves Jesus and who loves his bride, the church, should be appalled. We should be agonized. We should be moved to action by this reality. Right? We should be simultaneously trying to reform the church for what it does wrong, pursuing those who are walking away from the church in increasing numbers, and at the same time presenting the real truth of the life and hope that we have in Christ to those who've never heard it. This threefold pattern is one that Paul demonstrates for us when he faced a church crisis in Galatia 2,000 years ago. And we're going to be looking primarily at two of those prongs today. Um, because what we saw nearly 2,000 years ago is not that dissimilar to what we see today. Then, as now, Christians who, who knew the truth were walking, you might even say running, away from it. But Paul didn't choose to stand around and wring his hands and lament the day and 
you know, surrender to the inevitable. He didn't hunker down in a, a fortress church and try to hold it tighter and tighter. Right? He did not accept defeat. Rather, we see that he pursued those who wavered in their commitment to the truth. In other passages, we see the way that he sought to reform the church. In other passages, we saw his activity for the gospel. But today we'll be looking at Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 20, which particularly addresses the pursuit of those choosing to walk away from the gospel, those choosing to walk away from the church as it was supposed to be. Paul writes, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again? to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testified to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Can you hear in these words Paul's anguish? Right? His distress. We need to share this anguish when friends are abandoning the gospel. In this letter, Paul is writing to dear friends, and he is pleading with them because he knows they are walking away from the true gospel, the true good news of Jesus Christ. We've been talking for many weeks as we've walked through Galatians of the nature of the way they're, they're walking away. So I won't go into a lot of the details on that. But he knows what they're doing. In verse 11, he says he's afraid. In verse 12, he entreats them. In verse 19, he's in the anguish of childbirth. Now, if there's moms in this crowd, that's serious business. The anguish of childbirth. In verse 20, he is perplexed by his friends. Paul knows the truth, and they, they used to know the truth, and now they are walking away from it. And so he is distraught. Paul is distraught because his friends are adding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? Before they had come to know Christ, they had been pagans, they had been worshiping false gods, as he points out in verse 8, formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. And now Christians have come along who are claiming that these folks need to follow the Jewish rules and rituals in order to be truly saved, to be truly blessed. 
right? And so, and so Paul's friends are now following rigid schedules of Sabbaths and new moons and festivals because they think they need to do these things to get right with God. Hence his amazement in verse 10. You observe days and months and seasons and years, right? How could you do this? This is not what I taught you. This is what we can, can tell from his passionate words, that, that in his view they are voluntarily enslaving themselves. They're giving up their freedom to the old patterns and the old habits and the old rituals. And this is what Paul marvels at in verse 9. But now that you've come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again? To the weak and the worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more. Right before they knew Christ, regardless of their background, whether they were Jew or whether they were Gentile, right, they had all depended on following rules and rituals to try and get into good standing with whomever it was they worshipped. Because that is the nature of all other religions, to pursue pure and perfect behavior in order to bridge the divide between mankind and God. All of these older religions reflected an instinctual understanding of the problem that faces every single man, woman, and child on this earth. But simply put, we all do and think and say things that we should not do, bad things from time to time. We all sin. We all bring guilt and shame on ourselves and our families and our God. And you see, Scripture teaches us that every person is created with with a basic understanding, some idea of both God's perfect and holy standard and our failure to meet that standard. We all understand at some level that something must be done to bridge the gap between where we are in our sinfulness and our selfishness and our guilt and our shame and where we need to be in order to connect with the divine. What we see in all of these religions are rituals, procedures, practices to try and make unworthy men and women worthy of the divine. And the good news of Jesus Christ is very different from this because only the gospel, only the good news of Jesus Christ is really honest about just how bad our sin problem is and just how good our God is. Just how impossible it is for any of us to ever be good enough to bridge that gap, to enter into the presence of the God who created us and who who loves us. You see, only the gospel admits that we can't ever save ourselves. That left to our own devices, we will be forever separated from God. That we will be damned to an eternity apart from the loving God in whose image we were created. And the good news of the gospel is that because of God's great love for us, he didn't leave us struggling and burdened and stuck in this impossible situation. Instead, he freed us from the power of sin and death by sending his eternal son, Jesus, into the world to live the life that we can't live, the sin-free life that is impossible for us. And then to die a sacrificial death on a Roman cross to pay the penalty for all of our sins so that we don't ever have to pay that penalty. 
The good news of the gospel is that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, when we genuinely accept him as the Lord and Savior of our life, we receive forgiveness for our sins and an eternal life in the presence of God, and we don't have to do anything to earn it because it's not possible to ever do enough to earn it. And yet for all that, his friends in Galatia are turning away from the gospel. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? They are voluntarily giving up their freedom in order to accept slavery to the law of Moses so that they can resume trying to save themselves by good behavior. And Paul is agonized about this. He is pleading with them to, be, to choose to be free. Right? Isn't that an interesting insight into the way people work that it is hard for us to choose to be free? Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, free of the law. For I also have become as you are, like a Gentile. You can hear his distress, right? They, they had been so excited, probably less than a year earlier. They had been so excited. They'd been so receptive to the gospel, even though Paul was sick when he first preached to them, as he described in verses 13 to 15. Right? He'd been desperately ill, and yet they had sacrificially nurtured him, and they were joyfully believing in, him, in his message. But now they view him as an enemy because he is held tight to the true gospel. He asked them in verse 16, Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? And in a turn of events that might be familiar to some of you, Paul's friends have fallen for preachers who flattered them. Preachers who were preaching whatever it was they wanted to hear. Preachers who were offering them a path to save themselves by hard work and ritual following and good behavior. And so Paul is unpopular because he is holding tight to the truth of the gospel because he knows that every one of these other paths leads only to damnation. A closing off from the grace of God as these folks choose instead to glorify human preachers rather than glorifying God. That's the point of verse 17. They make much of you. They tell you what you want to hear. They tell you it's all good. But for no good purpose, they want to shut you out. Right? Shut you out of the kingdom of God. Why? That you may make much of them. That you may build their empire, their church. Paul watched miserably as his friends abandoned the gospel in favor of clever argumentation and crowd-pleasing messages and spiritual death. His misery is clear in verses 18 through 20. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. When I'm present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Right, Paul is miserable as his friends are walking away from the truth of the gospel. We need to feel that same misery and anguish and confusion as we watch the church fade away in North America. As we know friends who walk away from the church, right? Not just this church, but the church. 
as loved ones fall for either conservative or liberal legalism. And legalism is alive and well on both sides of Christianity and moralism. As brothers and sisters fall for a false prosperity gospel as seen on TV, or they decide that they're simply done with church, are we agonized like Paul, or do we just say, well, that's a shame, and we shrug our shoulders and move on? Right, our culture, our people desperately want to save themselves. This is in the nature of, I think, all mankind. It's particularly in the nature of the American life, right? We want to save ourselves. And so we keep falling for false gods of self, of scientism, of systems of the world, of political parties and structures, or the, the one leader who's going to solve all the problems, or special interest groups, or denominational or even parachurch organizations, and all of it is feeding an increasing appetite for what? For, for legalism, or for moralism, or for do-gooderism, for self-salvation on both the left and the right. And all of it ultimately leads to permanent separation from God. Because we cannot save ourselves, no matter how hard we try. And watching people that we care about walk these roads should break our hearts. As Paul's heart was being broken. Because we need to realize the good news is not just another choice, like picking where to eat when you're at the food court in the mall. The gospel is the difference between eternal life and eternal damnation. And so the events of our time should be tearing us up because the gospel is the world's only hope. And let me ask, do you believe that? Right? Do you really believe in your heart of hearts that the gospel is the only hope for this world? Because it is important that you do. Right? The world around us stinks. It is full of dictators and terrorists and nuclear weapons and crime and racism and oppression and hate groups and radicalization and environmental destruction and the erosion of religious liberty and the end of free expression and human trafficking and on and on and on. And everyone is demanding a a solution that comes through politics or laws or systems or regulations or protocols or movements or programs or revolutions. But guess what? These can't solve the world's problems. We've been trying to solve them this way for centuries. And the results are always terrible. They don't work. Because the fundamental problem of the world is human sin. Right? It is the desire to glorify and satisfy ourself at the expense of others. It is selfishness. It is greed. It is the quest for power. It is the failure to recognize the innate dignity and value of every single human being, regardless of of gender and race and nationality and social status. The world has a sin problem, not a policy problem. And any approach that fails to acknowledge the sin problem cannot solve the policy problems. Governments can't fix sinful hearts. Republicans can't fix sinful hearts. Democrats can't fix sinful hearts. Legalism, moralism, socialism, humanism, atheism, conservatism, liberalism, it doesn't matter. No ism can solve the sin that is at the heart 
of human beings because they all pretend that the problem doesn't exist. Right? These systems have all failed, and in many cases, horrifically failed because they will not admit the real problem at the heart of the human race. Every system, every utopian ideal, every well-intentioned approach is always undermined by what? Sinful hearts. And the only solution for sinful hearts is a radical heart transplant that is provided through Jesus Christ. Right? God promised through the prophet Ezekiel, and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Well, our new heart and the gift of the Holy Spirit comes when we accept Jesus Christ. It comes no other way. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ fundamentally transforms each person who embraces it, transforming us for the better, Right? Beginning a lifelong personal remodeling project within our hearts. A renovation bigger even than that mess that Philip walked into. A renovation project that ends when we die and we achieve the likeness of Jesus Christ himself. The gospel really is the only hope for the world around us. Only faith in Jesus Christ brings true genuine, lasting, meaningful, eternal hope and healing and transformation, first to individuals, but then to entire cultures, as the church does what the church is supposed to do, which is share this good news. The gospel has transformed degraded, immoral, and corrupt cultures for 20 centuries. 2,000 years ago, the Greco-Roman culture, the one in which Paul and the other apostles operated, was far more hopeless far more humanistic, far more nihilistic, and far more debased than ours today. Right? We whitewash history and think of it as a better time. It was a worse time culturally than anything we have going on in our society right now. Two weeks ago, I stood in Pompeii amidst the perfectly preserved ruins of a place where slave women were trafficked using a picture menu like you see at McDonald's. That is the inevitable result of a culture that believes all life is an accident, that believes it is meaningless, that believes there is no greater purpose. Because understand, this was not in some seedy, shameful part of the city. This was just another thriving business in the heart of town. That's what happens when a culture doesn't believe that there is a fundamental beauty, dignity, and meaning in every single human being because we're each made in the image of God. The culture that was preserved in Pompeii reflects the logical outcome of all the forces that are at work today so very powerfully. So we're not there yet. But these are where the forces are leading us. But I would say that the lesson of this is that there's hope. Because while that culture was frozen in time by a volcano, the rest of the culture was transformed, radically changed by one and only one thing, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ that was faithfully shared first by tens, and then by hundreds, and then by thousands, and then by millions of Christ followers who understood it was their responsibility to share the reason why they had hope amidst a hopeless world. The gospel was the force that overwhelmed an empire that hated it. It is the force that still transforms culture wherever it goes, right? The church has mixed results where it goes. The gospel is always 
successful where it goes. Right? It is transforming for the positive. The gospel is the one and only hope for positive transformation in the world, and we need to hold tight to it. And so that means that like Paul, we need to be faithful in pursuing those who are walking away from the gospel. Right? If we really believe the gospel, if we really believe there's no hope for the world outside the gospel, and you need to reconcile that in your mind, whether it's this morning or this week, or at some point you're going to have to reconcile it. Do you actually believe this? But if you do, then it means that we cannot be content to simply let people casually walk away from the gospel because of issues with the church, right? Because of church politics, because of political disagreements, because of a, a sense that church is irrelevant. We need to be feeling Paul's anguish when a brother or sister in Christ begins to slowly fade away from the congregation, begins to worship less and less often until eventually they're just another statistic, another evangelical who neither goes to church nor evangelizes. You see, as Christians, we really are supposed to be our brother's keeper. Right? Don't fall for what Cain said. That guy was a murderer. As Christians, when we see a brother or sister struggling with their faith, when we see them drowning with the, the issues in their life or because of the, the trying to struggle to process the events of the world around them, we need to be pursuing them with and for the gospel. And will they appreciate it? Maybe not in the moment, right? Paul felt like the Galatians viewed him as an enemy because he was pursuing them for the gospel. Nonetheless, James 5, 19 and 20 tells us that we need to be like Paul, passionately pursuing those who are walking away from the church, right? Not just our church, the church, who are turning their back on the gospel. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So every single one of us in this room needs to be paying attention and working hard to rescue people for the gospel, right? We should be like the paramedics for the gospel. We should be the ones who are getting called and, and, and looking for accidents that need to be taken care of. We need to be willing to get all up in people's business to try and win them back to the church. Doesn't have to be this church, but the church. But to succeed, we need to really, truly live the gospel, right? It can't be the thing we say. It needs to be the thing we do. It needs to define how we are, right? It is not adequate to just be churchy. We must be gospel-y. Paul could write the things that he wrote in his letters. He was a pretty direct guy, right? He could write these things. He could get away with saying the things he did, not because he was an apostle, but because every one of his readers knew that he had lived these truths every hour of every day of his life. Did he have sin? Of course he did. But he lived the gospel. Authenticity was his currency, and authenticity is the currency of our day. And again, we need to embrace that as believers in Jesus Christ. It is not adequate to be one person on Sunday morning and different the rest of the week. That fails utterly in our culture today. It's about authenticity. Because there is so little that's actually authentic in modern American culture. 
So as we are passionately pursuing those who are walking away from the, from the only hope in the world, our life has to match our proclamation. Otherwise, the church has no hope. Now, is the church in America flawed? Yes, it is. Is Lake Ridge Baptist Church flawed? Of course it is. But we need to realize there's no hope for the world. No hope for meaningful, positive, lasting life transformation outside of the church, flawed as she is. So we can no longer stand by and simply shrug our shoulders as people walk away from the gospel. The church, for all of its mistakes, all of its human failings, is, for whatever reason, the agent that God has chosen to use to proclaim and deliver freedom from sin and death. And so, like Paul, we must be afraid and agonized and perplexed whenever someone chooses to walk away from freedom and back into slavery. But my friends, there's another task we have to do because of the fact that the gospel is the world's only hope. We have a sacred responsibility to be like Paul in working to reform the church for the sake of the gospel. Right? And we have to be brutally honest with ourselves in order to do this. We need to be continually brutally honest with ourselves. Right? Is there something about our church or about our people that's driving people away from the gospel? Because as we look around society, right, people are abandoning the bride of Christ, the church in America, maybe even this church, because she's an ugly bride. Because of the politics, the harshness, the selfish inward focus. These are the forces that are killing, ultimately, the church in America. We must no longer stand idly by as people throw out the gospel because of the failings of churches or because of Christians who don't live by the gospel. We must demonstrate a better way. We must be a better church, both as individuals and as one unified body that that really believes the good news and lives what we believe. The gospel has never failed, and it will never fail, but the church will always be an imperfect instrument for sharing and demonstrating the gospel. But we can and we must do better. We must be ever and always reforming because we are the only hope for our decaying culture. So as Christians, as evangelicals, as Baptists, as the church, as Lake Ridge Baptist Church, we must be always reforming. Less politics, more Jesus. Less building and grounds, more loving people. Less doing church, more being true disciples of Jesus Christ. And so my plea, my entreaty, is that in coming days, each of us would scour our attitudes, scour our hearts, scour our church, and speak boldly into our culture and into the larger church in North America to proclaim and demonstrate the true good news of Jesus Christ, that we would hold tight to the good news because it is truly the only hope that the world has. Won't you pray with me? Lord God... First of all, we just praise you that in your unbelievable love and mercy, you sacrificed your son on a cross to take the penalty for our sins. That in your great wisdom, that in your infinite goodness, 
you solved the problem of human sin. You had always planned for dealing with it. In your perfect timing, you solved the problem of sin through your son. And so, Lord, we praise you and we thank you for the good news, for the very grace and mercy by which we stand and are able to come before you in prayer. We thank you for this good news. But, Lord, I suspect that almost all of us here know people in our lives. People who have heard this good news, but are walking away from it. Maybe they've had enough of church. Maybe they've been burned by church. Maybe they've had enough of the church, quote-unquote, in America. Maybe they're giving in to the secular worldview. Whatever it is, they're turning their back on the gospel, Lord. I suspect that most of us know people here, Lord. And so I pray that you would give us a heart for these people to go and live the gospel towards them, right? Not beat them over the head with the gospel, but, but truly live it, truly demonstrate it. Be willing to share it with them again, but to say, this isn't just empty words. This is about a way of life that is radically different from all who are around us. And so, Lord, I'd like to take just a moment of, of quiet where we can each lay before you the name of those we care about who have walked away or are in the, seem to be in the process of walking away, Lord. And we just ask that you would put a burden on our hearts for these individuals and that you would give us the courage of Paul, the anguish of Paul, and the love and grace of Paul to pursue them with and for the gospel. Lord, hear our prayers, hear these names, lay the burden on our hearts and gift us and give us what we need to say and do. Lord, I pray that you would not let us become callous to these people, to the choice they're making to walk away. Lord, do not let us just shrug it off as they're just doing their own thing. But put in our hearts and minds the significance of what they're doing and a passion to pursue with directness, with love, with joy. And Lord, we live in a culture that views your church with suspicion and cynicism, and quite honestly, they are right to do so. Right? What we understand is that the church is a place where, where people with residual sin gather, and we, we are, do our best to worship you and honor you and glorify you, but we understand that we will fall short because of the sin in our heart. But we don't do a very good job of communicating that to the world, of sharing our weakness and the source of our real strength, which is not our disciplines and habits, but is your spirit and your son. And so we just come off in very wrong ways. And give the very wrong impression of your church, which is the bride of your son. So Lord, I pray that you would lay on our hearts 
anything we need to change about ourselves as individuals, as the people of God, as a church. Things that hinder the gospel, right? We're not going to change the gospel. We will never let go of the gospel. We will hold tight to the gospel as Paul did. Lord, I pray that you would reveal to us in coming days where we have failed individually and collectively to not only advance the gospel, but through our attitudes or our actions or our words have repelled people from the gospel, have left people with the wrong picture of the gospel, Lord, I pray that you would turn our hearts away from those things, that we would be faithful to repent. And Lord, we know that you will forgive. We ask for your help in changing. And so, Lord, I just want to offer this time where you can hear the silent prayers of your people. That you would reveal to our hearts and that you would hear our prayers as we try to repent of these things.